0: to Season 5 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's festival of ideas since 1997. We're celebrating 25 years of community connection, and I want to give special thanks to our amazing volunteers who make it all possible, and to thank you for supporting the festival, authors, booksellers, and each other.
1: Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. My name is Stephen Beattie. I'm a reviewer and critic in Stratford, Ontario. And it is my absolute pleasure to be talking this afternoon to Elise Friedman, novelist, screenwriter, and author of the new novel, The Opportunist. Elise is a critically acclaimed award winning writer whose work has been shortlisted for the Trillium Book Award, the Toronto Book Award, the Relit Award, and the Tom Henry Award. Her short story, The Soother, won the Gold National Magazine Award for Fiction, and she has twice won the TIFF CBC Film Screenwriter Award. Please help me welcome to the podcast, Elise Friedman. How are you doing?
2: I'm well. How are you doing? Good.
1: Good. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunist, which is just a delight to read. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And you have gone online uh, or, or, or on record um, saying that it is your most murdery book.
2: It is, definitely. Of,
1: of, of anything you've written in the past. Um, and I won't say it's, it's Shakespearean, like this, the, the stage is not littered with corpses at the end, but there's more than one murder in this book.
2: Yeah, people die. And I was kind of alarmed at how much fun it was to kill them on the page. <laughs> okay. I'm a little worried about that.
1: What made you decide, was it was it like, were you writing during COVID and you were just going nuts? Or what, what made you decide, okay, I want to kill a lot of people in this book?
2: well i wanted to try my hand at a thriller so you know in the past i've written uh literary fiction and i have written high concept stuff and i have killed people but not murdered them people (laughs) have died in my book um but in my books before but um i wanted to try a thriller and i wanted to do that for two reasons one i like them and i thought it would be fun to write one and two um, my books tend to be well reviewed and then nobody buys them. <laughs> I have a son, uh, I'm a single parent with a son in university. And so I wanted to try to write something more commercial.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. And we could talk about the uh, the notion of single parenting because it's very um it's very profound in this book. But uh I wonder you said you enjoy reading thrillers. Have you been um reading um stuff like The Maid by Anita Prose or or the The Push by Ashley Audrain, that kind of thing? Because those are thrillers which have had actually a lot of uptake over the last couple of years. They've done very well.
2: Uh it's true. I haven't read um The The Maid. I did read The Push. Um and I've read the big ones like Gone Girl, which I thought sure. was terrific, and um, Girl on the Train. And I did read some of the more uh, famous ones for sure. Yeah.
1: Did you did you sort of because you you basically confined yourself to literary fiction prior to this? Although um, there are um, you know some. I won't say thriller elements, but they're kind of, of tropes of, of, you know, twists and turns in some of the the pieces in Long Story Short. Um, did, did you worry about making the jump to to the thriller mode in terms of it being very, um, there were all sorts of conventions that you had to follow, and did you feel like you had to, you know, bone up on what those conventions were, or did you just sort of let yourself go when you were writing this?
2: You know, I kind of just let myself go. I, ha- I knew what the ending was going to be. And I knew where I was starting, but I had no idea where I was going. And it was fun to just kind of keep twisting. Like the twists and turns were a lot of fun. And I have to say a lot of my other stuff, even my literary fiction, there are plots. Like, you you know, there's momentum. I like books that have momentum. I like books that don't have momentum as well. (laughs) It's just mine tend to have, uh, you know, they tend to move along and they tend to be have plots, right? Right, so,
0: right.
2: Uh, I'm used to that, but I'm not used to like turning and twisting so much. And I found that to be quite fun, actually.
1: <laughs> did you, did you, was your process different with this one? Like with a book that's this carefully plotted, it seems to me that, you know, in order to keep all of the various strands straight and all of the various character arcs straight, um, Mm -hmm. it it would would be almost more um, mechanical than, you know, doing something more literary. Is that fair to say? Or did you find it a different experience?
2: I mean, one would think that there would be more planning and index cards and that sort of thing, but I did it exactly the same way, which is I (laughs) knew the ending, and then I just winged it, like, which is what I always do. So, but, you know, there was a different element and I it's really gonna be hard to talk about without spoilers, I think. Well, this is
1: this is a problem, right?
2: Yeah, but there was an element that I had to be very uh cognizant of as I was writing it so that if people went back to the beginning after they had finished it that it would completely make sense all the way through so that was all that was different so always having to walk that tightrope is
1: and I think I think what we can say without giving anything away um because I am very cognizant of this is a very spoiler Um, e-book I I, I think the one thing we can say is this would be a very different reading experience the second time through yes because once you know how all of the pieces fit together then as you say you do go back and and the entire the, the end kind of makes you rethink the entire experience of reading the book
2: right and right. and and if you do go back uh and i hope people will you'll see that it it can it still makes sense
1: right 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 uh, so, so in, in broad terms for people who haven't read this book. This is this is about uh, what may be the most dysfunctional family I have encountered infection in quite some time. Can you can you talk a little bit about just just sort of give people an idea of what the book is about and, and how you came to, to settle on this story?
2: Sure. So okay, so it's about a very, very wealthy family. And the patriarch of that family, uh, who is 76, starts dating his 28 year old nurse. And his sons, who are in line to inherit a massive fortune, view her as a, a threat to their inheritance. And they want to get rid of her, basically. And they try to enlist. They can't do it because they're in tight with the father. But they try to enlist their estranged sister, who, who is really has nothing to do with the family, has long left them behind and doesn't care about the fortune, uh, in a little plan to help make this gold digger go away. And they sort of suck her into this, what is supposed to be a simple plan, but then things, of course, get very complicated, and she gets involved in twists and turns and schemes and betrayals and fun.
1: Um, Michael Redhill is blurbed on the cover of this book comparing it to to Patricia Highsmith, and I think that's a very accurate comparison, if for no other reason than because the characters are all so nasty with the possible exception <laughs> of uh, Alana who is the the estranged daughter um mm-hmm. the protagonist from Toronto um and and she's the single mother as well she yeah. has a daughter who is is uh, suffering from i believe is mul- uh, muscular dystrophy that's
2: right yeah um
1: she's the the daughter's 11 years old um she's, uh, she's going to die is is sort of what's what's hanging over um the, the head of both mother and daughter but at the same time um as a single mother Alana is struggling to make ends meet um you know she, she's 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 working um you know a, a, a job where she's you know pretty much overworked and underpaid um it's a very empathetic portrait of single motherhood and it's particularly empathetic for a single mother who is is in the charged with the care of a child with a significant illness and or disability. Mm-hmm. How important was that for you to 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 give Lily um muscular dystrophy and, and sort of to 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 display the difficulties involved in in parenting a child like that?
2: I mean it was important for a bunch of reasons. One, I wanted Alana and her struggle to be empathetic, and I wanted her to have a reason. There there needed be a reason for her to get involved with these people who she does not want to be involved with she does not (laughs) want to help her brothers she does not want to get involved in this plot but she has to for the sake of her daughter she'll do anything for her daughter and any parent most parents i think would know what that feels like but especially one who has a a time a ticking time clock you know she wants to give her daughter whatever she can and make her life as good as she can So the thought of being able to help support her daughter was important because it gives her the motivation to actually get involved with these terrible people.
1: Are you... I know you personally have been very involved in... uh, activism. You, you, um, you know, you, you've gone to the women's marches um, after Trump was elected. You know, you, you um, protested in front of the the um, American uh, consulate in Toronto when um, the the families were being separated at the U.S. border. Um, yeah. is, is are issues like disability justice important to you as a writer, as a fiction writer?
2: I mean, yes. All of the things that are important to me: social justice, equality love kindness all of those things are important and will show up in my fiction whether i want them to or not right so i set out to write a commercial thriller and i ended up writing about something else really i mean it all of those issues became embedded in this work against not against my will but without me even thinking about it, it just kind of happened.
1: Do you find that that's a that's a sort of a way to sort of sweeten the the medicine for readers as well? I mean if if you want to to make a point about um you know disability or single parenting um you know the challenges for for a single mother and so on and so forth by embedding those subjects in a commercial thriller do you think it's 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 easier for readers to to absorb them?
2: Yeah, I think so. Although I don't know if people will even notice
1: do you right. know what i mean
2: like i'm not sh- you can read this book on in different ways you can read it just as a, a page turner that's shocking and fun and or you know you can read it as uh as an examination of power and and other things you know so i don't know i think it is i i think it is a spoonful of medicine if you're trying to get a point ap- across but I was it. That just kind of happened naturally. Right. You know, I was trying to write a story, and then the other stuff just came into it. Like I right. wasn't. It wasn't an attempt to do that. It just happened. Well,
1: the, uh, yes. the other. I mean, the other thing that you, that you know is is very profound in terms of our current um, situation in the world is um, the influence of billionaires. Mm-hmm. Um, because, add the the patriarch of the family, um, the the septuagenarian who marries the the young, or the, who um, uh, is engaged to marry the young nurse, um, is a billionaire who has sort of devoted his life to chasing this idea of money and power and so on. And I thought of people like Donald Trump. I thought of people like Elon Musk right now with, you know, what's going on with, you know, the mess that he's made with Twitter. I thought of people Mm -hmm. like Jeff Bezos. I thought of, you know, all these people who are sort of very greedy and um, avaricious and self-involved and narcissistic. What was the, were you, did you have that those people in the back of your mind when you were creating Ed or
2: Yeah, I mean, not no one in particular, but just the idea of billionaires is to me is absurd. Like the idea of having so much money and and not using it to help people to me is is disgusting. Like, what are you doing? You're trying. You know, I was I was reading because there's a lot of stuff on a yacht. I read about super yachts and the and uh, the way people buy these super yachts. And it's always like more expensive bigger it's not about need it's about uh status and display it's not about needing 10 billion dollars it's about do I have 11 and he only has 10 that's you know it's it's all about this insane um you know display it right. has nothing to do with what you could possibly spend that on and I do <laughs> I personally find it disgusting that people would hoard billions of dollars. Right. When so many people are in need. Yeah, I just I don't understand it.
1: Well, and then and then I, I kind of thought of the, the second generation of Trump's in terms of um, Martin and Teddy, who are the sons um, mm-hmm. who, who enlist Alana in, in their scheme, largely because they don't want to be written out of the will.
2: Oh, yeah, they they don't want to lose, even though, you know, their father, even if he married this woman, uh, they would still be incredibly rich and have so much money but they they don't want to lose any of it right. they want to protect every bit of power and every bit of money that they can
1: right right what 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 was the um what was the impetus to tell the story from Alana's point of view but not to put it in the first person
0: hmm.
2: well I I am mostly in her head it's true like I am mostly with her but I wanted to be able to leave her as well right and go elsewhere which i do right. it's, it's a bit unconventional i guess but i do leave her and i wanted to have the power to leave her because otherwise we you know some of my favorite scenes like the scene on the speedboat with kelly and teddy if it were from alana's point of view we couldn't be there
1: you could you couldn't have that sort of immersive experience as a reader
2: right yeah. we, we couldn't go to that place like i wanted to leave Alana and go elsewhere
1: Right. There's also a lot of um, backstory that, that we don't necessarily get because it starts pretty close to the the end of the book. But then there's there's all sorts of stuff that has to get filled in in terms of um, Alana's uh, mother who has deceased. She was an alcoholic and she ended up drinking herself to death. I don't think that's a spoiler. Um, right. You know, there are um, issues with her sister, who is no longer in the picture, although we're not entirely sure why, we're not entirely sure what happened to her. What, what about the, the the use of that chronology? Like, was it difficult to to sort of modulate the the present and the past and keep flashing back and and you know? And how do you know at what point you need to inform readers about certain things for them to to stay with the story?
2: Uh, For me, that's completely done on autopilot. It's all instinct. You know, you just start writing and you think, okay, well, here's where I need to tell somebody uh, some information about the past. And then you can go, okay, I have to stop that now because we need to get on with the story. Like you just feel it. It's not a, it's not a, a intellectual thing. It's more of a feel feeling thing. It's an instinct. Yeah. I
1: hope I did it right. Is that true of of your process as a writer throughout your your literary career? Or have you, you know, have you always sort of worked intuitively?
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. What about as a screenwriter? Because I note that you know you have written a couple of screenplays which have, have uh, had great good success at TIFF, um, and and I note that this book in particular, I, I you know I, I understand that it's it's more commercial than your other books, but it is also very cinematic in the sense that I could totally see it as a three part Netflix series. Oh, cool! <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> was that was that did, did, did was that sort of was your experience as a screenwriter influential when you came to write this? this book um
2: no i I mean yes and no so i do know that when i write a screenplay it is very different from when i write it when i write a screenplay i know that i have a three-act structure and i know that at a certain point you know at page whatever there's a turning point and now i'm into the middle and then there's a midpoint like so that it is way more cerebral to to work on a screenplay i wanted my only thought in writing this i didn't apply screen writing uh rules to the writing of this at all but i did want it to move like i wanted to people to have to keep turning the pages what happens next was always in my mind like you want people to have to keep going
1: so in my other yeah no sorry no go ahead
2: no no i was going to say maybe that wasn't as you know on my mind as much in other books i didn't have like as cliffhangery sort of <laughs> chapter ends do you know what i mean um yeah but so that was in my mind but screenwriting structure and screenwriting rules was not a part
1: of this at all how how different is writing a screenplay from writing a novel
2: it's very very different for that reason you have you have rules you have to you have to sort of set the scene have a catalyst to, to set something in motion, uh, right away, then you have to have a turning point and then you have to kind of escalate, keep escalating the action. And then another turning point, like there are these very strict rules and the page counts. And, you know, if it's like 90 pages, great. If it's 120 pages, forget it. <laughs> you know,
0: like, seriously,
2: It's not like a book. There's so much more freedom in a book. So yeah, it's very different.
1: There's, there's more freedom to, to sort of elaborate or to, to expand,
2: expand, go back in time, go off on, you know, like a screenplay is like a journey where you've mapped out. I leave Toronto, I arrive in Montreal. I, you know, it's, it's mapped out Right. with a book. You can go, yeah, I have to get to Montreal, but I'm going to take a little side trip to <laughs> La Rid- yeah, or whatever, you know, like you can, you can veer. And also a book is about words, right? A book is about language. You can play with words, which I love. And a screenplay is about visuals. I mean, you, you can have clever dialogue and fun dialogue, but it's not about words. It's about visuals
1: and i did the other thing that i assume that you can do with a novel that you can't do with a screenplay is you have the ability to get inside the characters heads and give um viewers their psychologies and their thought or give readers their psychology and their thought processes
2: yeah exactly and another huge difference is that when you're finished it uh people will ask you if you finish a book they'll say do you mind if i change a comma Whereas if you finish a screenplay, you can, and this has happened to me, you may not recognize the thing that you wrote. It can be completely taken away, rewritten by a director or actors. And you what you see is not what you wrote. It's heartbreaking sometimes. And that so, doesn't happen with a book.
1: So, so there's more of a, um, I'm not going to say a collaborative process, but there are more cooks in the kitchen where a screenplay is concerned where a movie is concerned then there there might be with a book
2: oh yeah for sure for sure you have zero control as a writer of a screenplay you have you may not even recognize what you wrote right
1: right and, and that that sort of that sort of brings um to my mind the question of your relationship with a literary editor um but when you when you go through the process of of editing books um have you had good experiences with editors? What, what is that process like for you?
2: Yeah. I mean, for this book, it was, it was a very light edit. And I tend to, um, uh, for different kinds of writers, some writers kind of blat out a draft and then they go back and they go over it and they get editing. And uh, I'm very, uh, I'm the opposite of that. I'll write a page and then the next day I rewrite it. And the day after that I rewrite it. And so by the time I'm finished, it needs editing, of course, every, manuscript does but it's pretty pretty close to what it should be so um yeah the, i think the editing was pretty light and and i think patrick who was my editor patrick Green, who's retired um got it and yeah i think he had some really good notes and it was it was pretty great experience
1: So you're you're one of those uh, you're one of those writers who will not get moved to page two until you're satisfied with page one and you'll rework page one over and over and over again until you get exactly what you want. So how how, what what does that process look like time wise? How long did it take you to write this book? Well, (laughs) I started (laughs) it
2: so long ago. I started it so many years ago and then I never had time to work on it because I was always teaching, always trying to pay the rent, parenting like. There was just no uh, time to work on it. Right. And then the pandemic happened <laughs> and I couldn't teach and I had like eight months and I just wrote it. So it was great. It took me, you know, I started it in a bazillion years ago and wrote about 30 pages and then it sat in a drawer while I desperately wanted to get to it. And then I wrote it in about eight or nine months.
1: So having all that time during the pandemic was not a was not a, a, a chore for you. Then
2: it was good for me in that way. It was you know it was <laughs> pretty lonely in some other ways, but yeah. But in that way, it was it was a blessing. It was a blessing to have when you're,
1: when you're when um, you're immersed in your teaching responsibilities and um, you know um, all of the other uh, quotidian um, responsibilities of day to day life. Uh, do you? stop writing altogether? Do you write short stories? Do you take notes? Do you, um, do you, do you, you know, do you just sort of, you know, yearn for more time?
2: I yearn, I yearn, <laughs> I yearn, and <I> yearn. <laughs> no, it's hard for me. I can't, it's hard for me to switch gears. Like I really do need sort of quiet uninterrupted time. And, and there's so much life that gets in the way. It's not just work. Like there's just always stuff right family with my dad like there's just so much stuff that yeah it's hard to get that uninterrupted time so no I can't just sort of say okay I'm teaching and marking and doing a manuscript evaluation until four and then I'll do two hours it doesn't work that way for me that day is gone
1: so you're not one of those writers who can get up at like five o'clock in the morning do your writing for three hours and then start your day no
2: (laughs) <laughs> no, I need. To, no, I can't. I can, first of all, I can't get up at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> no, I can't. I'm just. I need to to know that there's nothing else. Right. Somehow, right. for some reason, that's when it works.
1: Is is it because when you're writing a novel, and I've heard novelists talk about this experience, you become so immersed in the milieu and the characters, and their situation, um, that if you do step away from it for any length of time, it will take, you know, a good few months just to get yourself back into their headspace. Is that, is that the case with you?
2: Yeah, so I, yeah, it is, and when you're in it, and when you have time to be in it, you really are always writing even when you're not at the computer and right. a lot of writing happens subconsciously and i find that a lot of things get solved i know this sounds strange but when i'm sleeping right so i will solve things when i'm sleeping i'll wake up with the solution or where to go next or what has to happen so yeah you kind of have to i feel like you have to be completely in that world and if you're in other worlds if you're reading students and other manuscripts and like if i'm editing someone's manuscript i have to be in that world and i have to be subconsciously thinking about that i think about right. that when i'm sleeping so yeah it has to be exclusive
1: right right and and what is that like when you have to to put yourself into the headspaces of characters like martin and teddy and ed who are so thoroughly loathsome
2: i mean it's fun. <laughs> it was. It's fun. It's fun. I found it fun. Um, I like writing characters who are assholes. I do. They're, they're, <laughs> I've done that before. Like my last book was about an artist who starts a cult to make money, and there were a lot of you know not very nice people in that, and I got I I got lambasted for that, and. I, it bothers me. Like, yes, they were supposed to not be likable. That's the point, you know. But so that happens uh, quite often. But I, I, I actually enjoy uh, writing those characters.
1: You you don't have any time for those, um, those readers or those critics who suggest that in order for a book to work, you have to be able to relate to the characters or they have to be sympathetic?
2: No, I don't. I don't believe that. And that bothers me when that when people say that right. and it yeah and i think that it, in my last book anyway the characters were textured they weren't all bad or all good but right. people just want them to be all good like you know there was a male character who seems to be at the beginning in my last novel not the current one who seems to be very avaricious and horrible and then this woman who seems to not be and then it they slowly kind of turn. And people got very angry that the woman was turned out to be more avaricious than the, <laughs> than the man. So yeah, I don't know. Well, I
1: mean, that's another, you know, another complaint that, that readers have. And, and, it you know, I can I can see it with the character of Kelly here is that a lot of readers are not are made uncomfortable by women who are not you know either um, completely pure or friendly or they don't like women who get angry in books they don't like women who you know have expressed negative emotions and so on and so forth which i thought you know after the me too movement you know kind of we might have gotten past that but I, i'm not sure that we have
2: oh no i hope we have when my book comes out very soon so i hope <laughs> we <have.
1: laughs> we'll see <laughs> the other thing, well, the but the other thing that sort of serves as a as a, a, a leavening element in in the opportunist as well as in your other work, uh, your earlier novels and short stories, is there. There's quite a bit of humor in it. Now, a lot of the humor is very dark, uh, yeah, of course. But uh, but but it's funny, and and you know, people I think can tell just from listening to you talk that you're a very you know you're a very funny person yourself. What do you yeah. think is the importance of humor in fiction?
2: I mean, it just i find that my favorite kind of writing is writing that has like that's funny but has a serious underbelly that marries those two things together because that's what life is right i mean it's funny and sad and tragic and scary and hilarious and to just have a drama with no humor in it just seems empty to me and and it's just it's not the way I write I mean it just comes out naturally but yeah I wanted it to to be a bit arch and have that tingle of humor through especially with (laughs) Kelly you know like she's she's fun
1: well I mean they're all fun to a certain extent if if only because you're you're, you know you're watching all of this and I know it's a cliche to say it's you know it's like watching a car crash or a slow motion train wreck or something like that But you're watching this and just kind of thinking it can't possibly get any worse, and then you turn the page, and it gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know. laughs> yeah. What, what was it? What was it about the family that attracted you? Because I, you know, you read you read novels. Uh, you know, by people like Jonathan Franzen um, about families and family dysfunction. Um, but that this is a, a particularly dysfunctional family. And I, I wondered, you know, what, what was it that that, you know, made you want to write about a family unit in that way?
2: I mean, families are really interesting to me. Like they, <sighs> the dynamics in families, you know, when you see adult children get together, they instantly become children. <laughs> right, and I love I love that I love <laughs> playing with that, and also you know yeah I don't know I just find the dynamics the psychology of family is very fascinating, and to be able to explore it and play with it is fun.
1: But do you find the dynamics and and psychology of of families? Um, do you find that there's something inherently discordant about a family unit.
2: Uh yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I come from a very dysfunctional family. I think most people have. It's hard to find a normal family, you know. Uh, so yeah, and just the levels. I mean, the levels of stuff because th- these are these are step siblings, so it's not the same. But in a in a typical family, you know, there's no matter how how awful your uh relatives are and how angry you are at them there's still this this horrible love that you have for them underneath which is interesting to me right you can't you can't do away with it
1: right right and i mean you know but everybody from from again from france until leo tolstoy you know if has investigated um families um, yeah. dostoevsky you know the, the 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 fractures that that can occur under the surface of, of even the most apparently well put together families but the other aspect of this book and and you know it's leavened by the humor it's leavened by the plot twist it's leavened by the fact that that you know you you really do force your reader to just you know keep pushing forward and turning the pages you can read this book almost in one sitting i mean it's it's you know it's that fast and that that entertaining but underneath all of that there are some very dark elements in the book yeah yeah. and again without giving too much away um there's alcoholism there's uh self-harm there's um you know uh, 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 uh sexual abuse um and i wonder if you did 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 you ever during your conversations um with patrick was there ever any talk about perhaps um putting some sort of content warning on the book or did that not ever enter the discussion
2: no that never came up interestingly no that never came up uh, uh yeah okay. i mean there yeah there's a lot of of dark stuff in there because i'm investigating uh power i'm investigating opportunism i'm investigating that subject right so yeah there's going to be darkness
1: how difficult was it for you as a writer to 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 to, you know to go to those places and to write those scenes
2: it was very difficult and there was one there was a i can't i don't want to spoil it there's one thing in the book that i put in there that i i i f- i found through research and it was just a such a disturbing horrible detail and i put it in the book but yeah it was very very uncomfortable
1: yeah yeah to do the
2: research of that element
1: yeah um and, and, and I, you know i i, I think I, I can identify the scene that you're talking about um having said that and you know having undergone all of that you know um um difficulty in the research, did you ever have a point where you said to yourself, maybe I shouldn't do this? Or was it always sort of, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, this is integral to the story, I have to face this directly?
2: Yeah, definitely. In fact, you know, it was kind of, it was almost the seed of that came from a real story, a real uh, story from my past, and was probably, you know, planted the seed of the whole narrative in my mind so it started much earlier than even thinking about writing a thriller
1: do you do do you find you do that with your fiction a lot do you mine your own past your own experiences for material
2: yeah (laughs) (laughs) i do i have i i find it difficult to i do that i do that i mean but my life is kind of somewhat boring so not entirely but i do find that it's easier to write a character if i'm thinking about maybe a combination of real people right um yeah and and situations and yes the seed of this came from a story from when i was uh, a teenager that stuck with me so yeah
1: right Right. Um, the other uh, character that I find just you know just incredibly endearing is uh, the groundskeeper in the the um, this um that the family estate has these here mm-hmm. deer and and her basically her charge is to go out in the mornings and shoot the deer, uh, which I thought was simultaneously grotesque and also kind of morbidly funny. Um, yeah where 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 did darla come from because she seems like a kind of kind of one of the outlier characters she's not quite comic relief but you know you're glad to have her to sort of take the the you know the the
2: yeah the it's end. funny i don't know you know when she arrived like i had no idea that she was going to be so important to the story <laughs> i just you know initially but yeah i don't know she just kind of grew into the into the plot somehow I'm not really sure she's kind of based on somebody I know but not exactly and uh yeah I just find her very uh good-hearted and kind and uh yeah I like her I don't know where she came from really
1: are you are you a writer who because I've heard I've heard people talk about this, too, um, when you start out to write something, you've got a set of characters, you know, basically what their situation is, um, how they relate to each other. But then I've heard writers say, but then the character did something unexpected. Are, you, are yeah. you? Does that happen to you? Do you do characters sort of go off in directions that you didn't intend them to go off in?
2: I don't know if the characters do as much as the story the narrative does i don't know which one comes first it's hard to say but i they do grow and change along the way because you have sort of a a rough idea of who they are in the beginning and the more you write the more they come into focus right so they they get clearer i don't know that they're like running around doing things like I didn't plan exactly but <laughs> they're not out of control they're not like screw you I'm going to do this but uh they do ch- they come into focus as right. you go along I think
1: Right right well there, this is this is certainly a very controlled novel and this is certainly you know um uh, uh, something that that has a, a great deal of uh interest in the in its plot in its twists in its turns and as I say I, I would encourage readers um because it's it's so fast and so easy, it would be so hard, not just to read it, but to read it twice. Because oh, I, I really think that the second, the second reading will be illuminating. Um and I want to thank you, Elise, so much for taking the time to speak with us this afternoon. Um, this has been a great experience, great conversation. And I really I'm I'm very delighted to have been able to talk to you about the opportunists. So thank, uh, thank you.
2: Thank you so much. I, it was fun. Thank you very much.
0: Stephen W. Beattie in conversation with author, screenwriter, poet, and playwright Elise Friedman. Her latest novel, The Opportunist, is available from independent booksellers across the country, including Perfect Books here in Ottawa. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors, and thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.